Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Today's scripture reading is from Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests, dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all of the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because of the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple, but many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping, because the people were shouting so loudly, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. Well, good morning. How is everybody? Good. One tired. (laughs) Thanks for being honest. Appreciate it. Um, As you're turning to Ezra chapter 2 and 3, I want to offer one word of encouragement and one reminder. Uh, One encouragement and one reminder. The encouragement is in God has you right now in your lives, exactly where he wants you. In God's economy, in God's plan, in God's uh, kingdom, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Your time isn't wasted. Your resources aren't wasted. Your relationships aren't wasted. Your pain isn't wasted. Your, your jobs aren't, aren't wasted, your careers aren't wasted, your life's not wasted. God has you exactly where he wants you. When you follow him, in, in Genesis, it says, at the end of Genesis, Joseph, who was thrown into slavery by his brothers and then raised to the top, he said, what man intends for evil, God turns it to good. And so I hope that's an encouragement to you today, that, that we, can, we can breathe. We can know that right here in this moment, now, God's, God might not call you here in this moment for the rest of your life. You might, you know, change jobs. You might move. You might do whatever. Like, sanctification is a process of continual growth and continual stretching and continual going outside of your comfort zone. But right now, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And that's comforting to know that when you follow Jesus, when you look to Jesus, you are exactly where the Lord has you. So that's the encouragement. I hope that's, I mean, that's been encouraging to me, especially the last week. Because it's tempting to think that um, something's being wasted. My time's being wasted, or my resources, my energies are being wasted. But that's, that's just not the case um, when we follow Christ. The second is a reminder. The reminder is that we're planting a church. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the saints of old used to say. And we still believe that, right? The purpose of a church is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We say it at AGC. We say we love God, we love others. That's our purpose. We gather every week, and we gather in small groups throughout the week because we want to love God well, 
and we want to love others well. The first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is also, it, it is this, also the first greatest commandment. It's like whenever you ask somebody what their favorite flavor of something is and they give you two answers, that's kind of what Jesus did when he said, these are both the greatest commandments, love God and love others. And so I hope that this is a reminder that what we're doing here at church every single Sunday isn't just another event to add on to the schedule or just another thing to attend. Rather, it is for all of us who are in Christ, the body of Christ, to lift our eyes up to see Jesus, to look at Jesus in his word, the whole of scripture, and it's, it's to, to, to come alongside each other, to bear one another's burdens with each other. And so that's why we meet weekly. That's why we meet in small groups. That's why we're doing all these things that we're doing is because ultimately at the end of the day, we want to love God. We want to love others. That is, that is it. That is, the only, that is all we're doing. And the result of that is evangelism. The result of that is making disciples. The result of that is talking to your neighbors, your coworkers, saying, hey, my life is radically changed because of what Christ has done. Also, I'm not alone because there's a group of X amount of people that their lives have been radically changed by what Christ has done too. Come and check it out. That's what the church is. So encouragement, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And reminder, this is, we're doing this for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to love God and to love others. So I hope that, that the Lord was putting that on my heart this last week, and I wanted to share that with you. And since I have a microphone, I can't, and you can't stop me. So um, uh, Ezra chapter 2 and 3. Um, catching up, we're in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to be taking the summer. We're going to be walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, originally, it was one book. And Ezra, Nehemiah, is actually at the end of the timeline of our Old Testament. So if you look at, you know, your Bibles, it seems like it's near the beginning, right? You got it like a little bit over here and then like a lot of it over here. It seems like it's near the beginning. The timeline of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah is actually at the very end. So what happened was, you know, Israel is led out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, finally into the promised land. They set up a kingdom. They sin, right, over and over again. They, uh, um, they don't keep to religious purity, religious purity. They worship other gods. They're impure. They worship other gods. And so God takes Babylon and he scatters them in the exile. It's the punishment for their sin. And then Ezra and Nehemiah is this wave of returnees. So all these Israelites were scattered for generations. They didn't have a home. They didn't have a place to worship. They didn't have a community. And now Ezra and Nehemiah is the beginning of the return after this book, there's 400 years of silence before Jesus comes on the scene, to put it into context. That's where Ezra and Nehemiah falls. Last week, Dave talked about Ezra 1, how the spirit of the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, and he also stirred up the spirit and roused the spirit of a bunch of Israelites. So the Lord and his sovereign guidance and his sovereign plan ended up using a pagan king for his purposes. And so we have this first wave of exiles. Now, now we get into Ezra 2 and 3. If you have your Bibles, I want you to just look at Ezra 2 or like scroll through Ezra 2 if you have it on a thing. Just like look at it, glance at it, skim it. It looks, uh, it looks like just a list of names and numbers. And that's because it is. <laughs> this is 
This is why I went to seminary to tell you these things. <clears throat> it is. It's just a list of names and numbers. We get out of Ezra 1, and it's like, hey, they're coming back. They're returning. Everybody's giving this free will offering, and they can rebuild their temple. They can rebuild their walls. They can rebuild the community. And then all of a sudden, <clears throat> Ezra 2 is just like this list of names. And you're like, well, that's just a, a killjoy. Like, if you're reading it, it's just like, why am I, why am I reading? All the names are really hard to pronounce. It's, it's, it's confusing. But before we chalk it up to just a dead list of names, right? We need to remember two things. We need to remember the context of Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole. A couple weeks ago, I put this slide up on the screen, and it's the shape of Ezra and Nehemiah. Each section has a main character, and each section has what are they rebuilding, okay? So we're in the first section, Ezra 1 through 6. The main character is Zerubbabel, and what they're rebuilding is the temple. They have been generations without a place to worship God, generations without a place to sacrifice. So they're finally going to rebuild the temple. Then there's the next section, Ezra. Ezra's the main character, and he rebuilds the community centered on God's word. Nehemiah is the next character, and he builds the city. But we're, right now, we're in, in the first section. And Ezra 2 is just this list that's just kind of plopped into the middle of this. But before we, you know, like I said, before we chalk it up to just like, okay, there's, there's a really important um, reason for why there's this list. So uh, the, first, the first thing is that this list, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. Look down at Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. This is what it says. These now are the people of the province who came from those captive exiles King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Okay, the, the, this list of names is a list of people who are returning from exile. King, Babylon, or King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon brought them out. Ezra 2, it says it right there. These are the list of names of people who are returning to Jerusalem to go to his own town. Now, look down at chapter 2, verse 59, because this, this is where it gets juicy. I know you didn't think that a list of names could get interesting, but it does. Chapter 2, verse 59. The following as in these following names, are those who came from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, Imner, but they were unable to prove that their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelite. Look down at verse 62. These people searched for their entries in the genealogical records, but they couldn't be found, so they were disqualified from priesthood. Who? Interesting. Also, what in the world is going on? So we have this list of people first, and it's people who returned to Israel. These are the people, these are the names, these are the numbers. They're divided up into like, these people lived in this area, these people are this family name, these people are whatever. And then all of a sudden, at the end of chapter two, we get this, oh, and by the way, here's a list of people who couldn't prove that they were Israelite ethnically, so they weren't allowed to come back. That seems a, a little harsh, right? They couldn't prove, I mean, maybe they like, couldn't find their Ancestry.com like, account or something, and they lost it, and then they just couldn't prove that they were Israelite, and so it's like, oh yeah, sorry, tough luck. Additionally, these priests were serving as priests in Persia, and not only could they not come back, but it says they were disqualified from the priesthood, which means in that moment, they lost their jobs. They literally were like, sorry, you can't prove that you're Israelite, so you are no longer a priest. What is going on here in chapter two? Glad you asked. 
I'll tell you. Two things are happening in Ezra chapter 2. The first thing that's happening in Ezra chapter 2 is that they are trying to establish a connection with pre-exilic Israel. Pre-before exilic exile. What this list is showing us is that these people are taking it very seriously that they're the people of God. The, the, the people whose God led them out of slavery from Egypt, they're the same people. The Israel whose God delivered them through the Red Sea, same Israel. The Israel whose God provided for them daily in the wilderness, gave them food, made sure their clothes didn't wear out, protected them from you know, natural and uh, physical disasters in the wilderness, that same God, they're the same people. The reason they're, they're so intent about this list is because they're saying like, look, I know we've been scattered I know we messed up. I know it's been decades and generations since we've had an identity, but we are the same people who God provided for, Yahweh God led and provided for throughout those generations. So they want to establish that connection. The second thing that's happening in uh, Ezra chapter 2 is they want to avoid the same mistakes as their ancestors. They want to avoid the same mistakes as their ancestors. What led Israel into exile in the first place? Sin. More specifically, the lack of religious purity. More specifically, worship of foreign gods. How did foreign gods get introduced to Israel? Primarily, a lot of ways, but primarily through marriages of foreign peoples. You're an Israelite woman, you meet an Egyptian man, you marry him, odds are he brings his Egyptian gods with him, you start worshiping them, the introduction into Israel of, of Egyptian gods. You're an Israelite man, you marry a Philistine woman, odds are she brings her Philistine gods into that relationship, therefore you're introduced to other foreign gods. The correction for that then according to this, is that they wanted to, so, so you're Zerubbabel and you're Jeshua, you're these leaders, and what you're saying is like, that is what, the, this, this lack of religious purity, this worshiping of foreign gods, this breaking of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, led the people into exile in the first place. We don't want to make that same mistake again. So in, instead, of, instead of making that same mistake again, we're going to make everybody prove that they're Israelite. No, no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You have to prove that you're Israelite, that there's a little bit of this in you, there's a little bit of this in you, there's a little, none. You can't do it. So, in order to avoid the same mistakes, they demanded not just religious purity, but also ethnic purity, even, dare we say, racial purity. And this is the beginning of a tension we're going to feel in Ezra and Nehemiah. The tension of good motives and unintended consequences. Good motives, unintended consequences. Do you see that? Good motives. We don't want to, uh, Jeshua and Zerubbabel are like, we don't want to make the same mistake again. Uninte uh, so they're going to be really strict on, hey, you have to be Israelite in order to do this. Unintended consequences, some people are excluded from this. Maybe the Lord roused their spirit. We don't know. But now they're saying you can't come. Some people lost their jobs. They were priests, which means that they were, they were doing the things that the Lord had commanded them, and they're like, yeah, but I'm so sorry. Get out. There's this exclusivism that is an unintended consequence of their good 
motives. Because think about what is Israel supposed to be? Israel, the people of God, also us here today, are supposed to be the people in and through whom God's blessing reaches everybody else. They're supposed to be the nation for other nations. They're supposed to be the people for other peoples. They're supposed to be the ones that actually take care of the poor, take care of the sojourner, take care of the exile. There are literally laws in the Old Testament that say, by the way, there's going to be people who like, are really interested in Yahweh, and they're going to like, follow along. Make sure that you have like, laws for them to be included into this community. Ultimately, through Christ, not just the ideal Israelite, but also the ideal human, it is now in and through him and us that we are supposed to be this blessing for all nations and for all peoples. And what's happening here is Zerubbabel and Jeshua are saying, yeah, we, want to, we don't want to make the same mistakes again, so we're actually going to exclude certain people. This is a tension. And we feel this tension a lot, right? Like, have you, maybe, I, I think we feel it. Have you ever felt this tension before? A good motive Unintended consequence. Let's start like really, you know, simple. Good motive, wanting to make people laugh, telling a joke. Unintended consequence, the joke falls flat and actually you kind of offended somebody, right? That's, did, was that one of those situations? <laughs> um, good motive, unintended consequence. Good motive, social media, connection, right? Connecting people together that you haven't talked to or seen in years. Unintended consequence. The list goes on and on, but... Comparison, jealousy, lust, anxiety, detachment. Good motive, wanting to help somebody understand something. Unintended consequence, kind of demeaning their knowledge and assuming that you know everything and they don't know anything. Could be. Good motive, wanting to get things done. I like to get things done. I'm task-oriented. Unintended consequences, people can sometimes not feel valued or maybe even used by you because they're in the way of you getting what you want to get done, done. Good motive, focusing on people all the time. Unintended consequence, maybe not focusing on yourself enough. Flip that. Good motive, focusing on yourself. Unintended consequence, not focusing on other people enough. Good motive, passion for what you love. Unintended consequence, arrogance, narrow-minded. Good motive, being in the world and not of the world. Unintended consequence, getting more and more scared of the world and therefore separating ourselves from the world, thereby eliminating any ability to make disciples. Good motive, Christian community, small groups, Christian friends, church. Unintended consequence, if we're not careful, a holy huddle that is insulated and ends up not interacting with or even knowing unbelievers and therefore having little to no kingdom impact. Do you, do you feel that tension? We have good motives a lot of times. And if we're not careful, if we're not asking the Holy Spirit to guide us, if we're, not, if we're not following the Lord, there can be unintentional consequences that we are not even aware of that can actually be very detrimental. It starts here in Ezra 2. This is a very small glimmer in Ezra 2. It's gonna get more and more escalated until the point in Ezra 9, which we're gonna get to in a month or so, where literally there is a, there is a direct order for thousands of people to divorce their wives and leave their wives basically as single mothers. Good motive, 
unintentional consequence. This tension that we feel in our own lives and that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is a tension that one, isn't gonna be resolved in Ezra and Nehemiah. So I'm sorry if you guys like you know, resolutions, you like happy movies, you like everything ending in a major key. Ezra and Nehemiah is not your book. Um, but also, it's never gonna be ended in our life. This tension is never gonna end in our lives. We feel this all the time. So how do we, how do we walk in that? Well, that's exactly what we do. We walk in it in wisdom. This is why the Lord says to live by faith, not by sight. And this is why we have to rely on, one, the spirit to guide us, but then, two, each other, this Christian community. Where were Zerubbabel and Jeshua's friends when they were saying, like, hey, they can't come? It's like, wait, aren't we supposed to be the nation that's for other nations? Why aren't, why aren't we including them anymore? This tension of good motives and unintentional consequences. All that from a list of names. Who would have thought? That's Ezra chapter two. Turn the page, Ezra chapter three. So this, this group of people, they get into Jerusalem, or the promised land, Israel. The first wave of exiles is back. They're settling into their own homes. They literally unpack their bags into their homes, and the first thing they do is, excuse me, <clears throat> the first thing they do is they go to Jerusalem, which is where the temple used to be, and they have a worship service. That's the first thing they do. They say, hey, okay, unpack your bags, great, let's go. They go to Jerusalem, they have a worship service. They build an altar, and they sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord on this altar, as prescribed in Moses, which is like Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. So they do that, and they have the worship service, and then they, they celebrate a holiday. Look down at chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, actually, let's go chapter three, verse three. They set up an altar on its foundations. They offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. Then verse four says this. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed, and they offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. Now, I know that some of you have probably brushed up on your Jewish festival trivia, but just in case you haven't, let me explain what the festival of shelters is right there at the beginning of verse four. They celebrated the festival of shelters. Another word for this is the uh, feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. Those are all the same word. Uh, shelter, tabernacle, tent, booth. They're all the same word. It just means tent, basically. It's a fancy word for tent. And what this was is it's a Jewish holiday that's actually still celebrated today. If you go there around the month of September, they still celebrate this holiday uh, yearly. It's like our Christmas and our Easter, where we have these like rhythms of, in the Christian calendar of like Christmas time, we celebrate the birth. Easter time, we celebrate the resurrection. It, it, it is that for them. And its origins come from Leviticus 23. If you wanna have some fun reading later, go read Leviticus 23, and it prescribes what to do on this festival, on this feast, what to do. And the reason, basically what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to sleep in tents for seven days. They were supposed to camp out. So what they do today, actually, if you go to Israel today, they have their homes, but then literally in their backyard or on their roof, they'll just set up a tent and they'll sleep under it for seven days. The reason for this is to be a physical reminder of when they lived in the wilderness and they had to sleep in tents. Remember, they're in Egypt, they're in slavery, they get out of slavery, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. Where do they sleep? They slept in tents. So now that they're in the promised land, God is saying this, this festival, this holiday, is basically saying, hey, I want you to remember, physically remember for seven days 
where you came from, the wilderness, I want you to remember that you had a need. You needed God to provide for you daily. And also, I want you to remember that God was faithful in those moments. God was faithful in the wilderness. So this feast of shelters, this festival of shelters, is reminding us that God was faithful in the wilderness. He will be faithful to us again today. God is faithful in the wilderness. He will be faithful to us in our lives again today. It shows a need and it shows a provision. And then uh, the chapter three continues and it basically, these people set up the foundation of the temple. So they, did, they built an altar. They celebrated the festival of shelters, which we'll talk about more in a second. Then after the festival of shelters, after the seven days were up, what they did is they built the foundation of the temple. Once the foundation of the temple was laid, there were two responses. Everybody was freaking out. This is great. This is the best day ever. We finally have a place we can worship God. And the other group of people, the elders, which is just a nice way to say the old people who saw the first temple, they were crying. They were weeping. Why? Because they remember the first temple. What happened then? Thunder, smoke, the foundations of the temple shook. Thousands of sacrifices, jubilee, celebration, all of these things. And then they're here at this one, and they're like, I, it's, it's not the same. So why is it that when Israel returns to the land, the first thing they do is celebrate this festival? The first thing they do is worship the reason is, is because it acts as a physical reminder of God's faithfulness. They, need, they did not have this, remember, they did not have the spirit of God reminding them. They did not have the spirit of God indwelling their hearts, correcting them, um, um, uh, convicting them, reminding them. And so they, they, were able, they needed to do that. So this shows our need for a new covenant, right? They had to do this over and over and over again. So why don't we do this? Why don't we like go in our backyards once a year and put up a tent and like, you know, sleep in our backyard. Some of you are like, why can't we do this? Like this, that would be great. And others of you are like, ew, tents? No, thank you. Um, and so why don't we do this today? Well, the reason that they did it then is because it needed, it showed them the need for a new promise, a new covenant, a new testament. What that festival did and by them sleeping in that tent for seven weeks, seven days, it said, I'm going to remind myself of when I was in need, and I am going to anticipate when God actually tents, tabernacles, dwells among us. That word tent is the same word used in John 1 when it's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. God, the word came and it dwelt among us. That word dwelt, same word as, test, as tent as shelter, as tabernacle. Jesus has tabernacled among us. Jesus has dwelt among us. So while they were, they were there we, uh, year after year, sitting in these tents, waiting for the presence of the Lord to be fully realized, we now, through Jesus, who is the ideal Israelite and the ideal human, now have the, the presence of God in our lives literally living, dwelling, tabernacling among us. And so I hope it's, I hope it's easy to see how this, this text can affect our lives. On a large scale, on a large scale, this text shows us a tabernacle is not enough. A, a, a simple 
yearly ritual of sleeping outside for seven days is not enough. Something more is needed. A new temple isn't enough. There was crying and weeping. A new exodus isn't enough. There's still um, um, expulsion of people. There's still all these things. What is needed is not a new festival or a new temple or a new uh, ritual, but what is needed is a new heart, a new spirit, a new mind, a leader better than Zerubbabel, better than Jeshua, better than Moses, better than Abraham, better than David. What's needed is Jesus, who himself is the presence of God living among us, restoring us and humanity back to God. That's the large-scale message of this text. On a, on a smaller scale, more individually, more specifically, how can, we learn, how can we learn from this text? What does this text show us? A few things. One, we can remember those who have gone before. There's this really attractive um, lie, lie is too strong of a word, that like basically we are, are, we, have, we are experiencing everything on our own and nobody has ever experienced what we're experiencing before and these are the worst times ever in the world and these are unprecedented times and we're at our wit's end because nobody has shown us what's going on. Uh, that's not true. Every generation, come, generations come, generations go. There are struggles every generation. Nothing is new under the sun, Ecclesiastes said. We, re- we know that when we remember those who have gone before. Do you know that we stand on the shoulders of billions of Christians who have gone before us? Thousands of years of church history have led us to this point. Think about in your own life, how did you come to know the Lord, if you have? Somebody told you. Who told you? Who told them? Who told them? Right? On top of that, all these huge reformations. We have, we have the church fathers. Uh, we have the apostles. Then we have the church fathers. Then we have the reformation. Then we have all of these great things that we, when we look back, when we do what Ezra 2 did, and they said, hey, those people, that's us. The people whose God led them out of Egypt into the promised land, the people whose God loved them so much that he sent his own son to die for them, the people whose God got the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues, did healings, built the church from the ground up, those people, that's us. We are those same people. Is that not empowering or what? We have the same spirit who has raised Christ from the dead and has started the church and has said that the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. That same spirit and those same people are us here sitting today right now. That's encouraging. First, remember those who have gone before. Second, we can ask ourselves, do we have good motives? In what ways do we have good motives, but maybe some unintentional consequences? This is a a question to probably ask between you and the Lord. And it's probably a question that we need to ask for God to open our eyes to. Because a lot of time about unintentional consequences, you can't actually see the unintentional consequence until after the fact. So how can we say, Lord, I do have good motives of doing this, but also I don't want to, I don't want to, I have a good motive of Christian community, but I don't want to become a holy huddle. I have a good motive about attending church, but I don't want it to become just another event to me where I just add it to my schedule. Ask the Lord to open your eyes to areas like that. And then finally, 
How do we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness? The festival of shelters was a physical reminder of God's faithfulness. Part of the way we remind ourselves is by this, every Sunday morning, by small groups. But how do you literally remind yourself of God's faithfulness? How do you remind yourselves, and uh, in addition to prayer, fasting, Bible reading, in addition to those, you know, the spiritual disciplines, in what other ways can we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness in your life? Maybe it's a meal with your family once a week where you're like, all right, we're going to talk about God's faith. How has the Lord been faithful to you? Maybe it's a note on your mirror. Maybe it's a whatever. I don't know. However the Spirit is leading you to remind yourself of God's faithfulness, how are we doing that and how can we continue to do that? One of the ways we do that most explicitly is through communion, right? That is a literal, physical reminder of God's faithfulness. God did not leave us to our own sin, but he became sin for us. How? Dying on a cross, And now when we eat of the fruit of that tree, the tree of life, the cross on which Jesus died, we now have new life. That is a physical reminder of God's faithfulness. So I'm going to pray. We're going to leave these prompts, questions on the screen. And I want to take an extended period of of time, like, you know, three to five minutes. And when I'm done praying, you can come up, grab the elements, and go sit back down. But I want us to really contemplate, okay, One, how am I remembering those who have gone before? Lord, open my eyes to areas in which I might have good motives, but actually my actions and the consequences might not be what I intend. And then three, Lord, prepare my mind to have, uh, remind me of your faithfulness and ask God to give you ideas for how to do that. So I'm gonna pray, we're gonna grab our elements and then we're gonna um, reflect for a little bit. And actually, if you would, I would just ask if you could just open your hands just right, right in your lap, just as a physical posture of what we want our heart posture to be. Our hands are open before you, Lord, now. And God, I ask that our, as our hands are open, Lord, our, our hearts would also be open. Father, teach us your ways. Lead us on straight paths because of your righteousness. Father, remind us of the saints of old on whose shoulders we stand. Remind us that you have gone before us and you actually, you you go behind us, you go before us, you are all around us, Lord, and we are not alone. We are not just a community in isolation, Lord, but we are with you and the same people that you saved from Egypt, from the wilderness, from their sins is us, Lord. When you sent your son Jesus to not just become the ideal Israelite, but to become the ideal and perfect human, God, it is now in and through him that we have life and life abundant. Remind us of that, God. As we take communion, I ask that you would show us again your faithfulness. That it would be through the elements, Lord, that you would show us that you've been faithful by dying by giving up your body, by giving up your blood for us. Teach us, we pray, in all things. We pray this through your son's name, by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.